The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Would you remain standing with me this morning in reverence of reading God's holy word? This morning we'll be reading Matthew chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Let us pray. Father God, I count this as perhaps the most precious moment in every week. Your saints have gathered and lifted our voices as one to sing praises to you. Seeking with whatever feeble energy we have to rightly reflect your glory to the world. To remind each other of the truth found in your gospel. And then it's this moment of stillness and silence as we prepare to sit under your word. Father, this is my favorite moment. We're about to hear from the king of the universe. What a thing. Because what matters a whole lot more than what we have to say to you, God, is what you say to us. Our words can be twisted. Our words can be confused. Our words can be feeble. Our words can be untrue, but never yours. Yours are true, and they are right, and they are powerful. They cause things to happen. They mold men into your image. So, Father, this is my favorite moment. As if we're just sitting on the outside of a throne room waiting, knowing that we're next. We get to come in and we get to hear the king of the universe open his mouth and speak. So would you speak to us now, Father? Would you prepare our hearts to hear your word and recognize, to receive them, not as the words of men, not as words from a book, but is the authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient word of God. Father, would you do that now? We ask it not merely for your glory, but also for our good. We ask it in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So on this beautiful Easter Sunday morning, I would like to return with you to the first verse in Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. Now, as you may recall, we shifted our focus last week. Having come to a biblical understanding of who Paul is and why we should receive and believe the word that he says, we then asked ourselves, to whom is Paul writing? Now, this may seem to many people as a fairly inconsequential thing. I know that Paul is an apostle by the sovereign will of God, I know that the words that he records for us here, therefore, are the authoritative word of God. So why should it make any difference to me to whom he has written? Well, friends, it's at least in part because what we find in this letter are some truly magnificent promises, assurance and hope that God has has done, he is doing, and he will do wonderful things on behalf of his people. And so it would be very foolish of us then to take these promises and speak of them as if they belong to the entire world. 
not only foolish, in fact, I say cruel. It is an act of cruelty to speak to the world as if they can lay claim to all that we find here. To speak as if these things belong to the universal world, as if God has universally bestowed them upon the whole of mankind. Now, please hear what I'm saying. I'm not telling you that we don't teach this word and we don't take these scriptures to the world. Quite the opposite. It is through this word that God brings men to saving faith. How will they believe on him whom they have not heard is what the scripture says. We're to preach this word to men, knowing that faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of Christ. So beloved, we take this gospel. We take these scriptures. We take this word far and wide. We preach it to anyone and everyone who will sit still long enough to listen. We tell the world, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Trust in Jesus Christ and you will be saved. We sow this seed liberally and without discrimination. Again, I say to anyone who will sit still, sit still long enough to hear us, we call men to trust in these promises. But I'm afraid that for many within the contemporary church, they have moved from presenting Jesus Christ and calling men to repentant faith to merely holding up the fullness of the kingdom of God and speaking as if it's the natural birthright of all, birthright of all men. Do you understand the difference? It is one thing for me to go out and issue, usher out and issue an invitation to a royal banquet. It's an entirely different thing to pretend as if you're already dressed and seated at the table. And so as we move, as we move beyond Paul's greeting in the weeks to come, as we move on to these fantastic presentation of all that the triune God is doing in perfect harmony to work for the good of his people, we'll find promises like, Verse 3, where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Or verse 13, where he says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Blessed with every spiritual blessing. Guaranteed an eternal inheritance. In Christ Jesus, these things belong to the Apostle Paul, to the people to whom he first wrote, and to any who today who are like them. And so today, before we seek to unpack all that God has promised to be for us in Christ, before we look at the richness of his spiritual blessings, before we start making these promises to ourselves, we do good then to first ask, to whom has he made these promises? To whom has this grace been given? Who are the we that Paul speaks of here? Or to put it in more common English, how does Paul describe the Christian? These gifts of grace, forgiveness, adoption, and eternity with God in heaven. These things are only promised to the Christian. So how does Paul describe what it means to be Christian? With that, I ask you to return to your feet, please. We continue on and the book of Ephesians, the first chapter, we'll read verses one and two this morning. Again, I remind you that this is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, amen, you may be seated. Father God, would you make this book live to me? In it, would you show me yourself? Would you show me myself? Would you show me my Savior? Would you make this book live to me? For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as we discussed last week, the first description that Paul gives to those to whom he writes is that they are the saints. Now this is a term that makes many Christians uncomfortable. They're quite hesitant to call themselves the saints. They'll say, oh, I'm a follower of Christ, but I wouldn't dare call myself a saint. And yet that's exactly what God calls you. Perhaps Paul's favorite description of the Christian, he says that they are the saints more than any other description. A Christian, a follower of Christ, a person on whom God has lavished the riches of his saving grace, he is a saint. Now I tried last week to show you what it means. We went to the scriptures and we sought to ask the question, what does it mean to be a saint? 
Now, I'm afraid in looking back that I bit off more than I could chew in one single sermon. I'm afraid I backed myself into a bit of a corner. And so, if for nothing other than my own peace of mind, would you allow me to recap? Would you allow me to circle back just for a moment and remind you what I tried to say to you last week? A saint means a holy one. Holy means set apart. When we say that God is holy, ultimately what we're saying, most fundamentally, what we are saying is that he is other, that he is unique, that he is truly in a class all of his own, set apart from his creation. Therefore, the only way that anyone or anything can become holy is if this infinitely holy one blesses them and declares him to be holy. Anything that God chooses in this way, he sets apart into himself and it becomes holy. Now, in the Old Testament, we find a number of inanimate objects being declared holy. A holy land, holy utensils, holy days. It's not that these thing or things are different or more worthy than all the rest. They are holy because God has set them apart. He has chosen them among all the others. Not only has he separated them from the rest, he has consecrated them to himself to be used for his good purposes. They are now his. They're to be used and devoted to honoring and reflecting and bringing glory to his name. Their holiness is a derived holiness. It's a holiness that's found only because of their union, because of their belonging to God. And so God can declare a lampstand or a laver to be holy. But we see this picture most clearly with regards to the nation of Israel. Now God expressly says he did not choose this people because they were the greatest or the most mighty among all the peoples. In fact, he says it has nothing to do with them. There was nothing within them that would cause them to look lovely to God. And yet he chose them. He loved them. He set them apart from all the nations and he called them to himself. They were a holy nation because the God who called them is holy. But this is where I'm afraid we may have missed the mark last week, or I may have missed the mark last week. You see, when we speak of holy ones, when we speak of the saints of God, when we speak of a Christian, he is not only set apart unto God, he must also be cleansed of anything that would prohibit him from coming into the presence of God. God can look upon no impure thing. No ounce of sin can come into his presence. And so for a man to be a holy one, for a man to be set apart unto God, he must cleanse you. That was the promise I read to you from Ezekiel 36 where he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. That matches up with the prayer that King David offered in Psalm 51, isn't it? He says, wash me thoroughly of my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Above and beyond just our creatureliness, which does in fact make us different from God. It's the stain of sin. It's the uncleanliness of our rebellion. It's that mark that rests upon us because of our iniquities. It is that which separates us from God. And so to be a saint, to be a set apart from the world and welcome to God, he must cleanse us from the guilt of our sin. No, oh, dear friends, what a glorious promise. Do not allow yourself on this Easter Sunday morning to take such a thing lightly, that you have been thoroughly cleansed by the very hand of God, that God which should reach out to strike you dead, the one whom you have offended, the God whom you have sinned against, that he would take that same hand and that he would wash you clean. That this would be a very costly thing. It would require the blood of his own son. Again, I say, do not allow yourself on this Easter Sunday morning to take that holiness for granted. Don't think lightly of it. Don't think it a minor detail. Because in the end, what you will find is that all things that have not been cleansed like this, they will be cast out of his blessed presence forever. You have either been cleansed by the hand of God prepared for eternal blessings in his presence, or you are marked unclean and you will suffer a torment in hell, fit for nothing but destruction. So holiness is not a mitre thing. It's not an inconsequential thing. It's not a thing to be taken lightly. But we praise God that he does not just stop there because a saint is not only cleansed of his sin, set apart from the world and welcomed into the presence of God, the Holy Spirit works in him now, even today, God ensures that his saints will become holy. Holy in the sense that we most often think about this phrase. Not just set apart from the world, but unlike the world. Unlike the common. Unlike the profane. Looking more and more like this holy God who has called us to be his saints. God has promised this through the prophets. He has promised that he would give us a new heart. That on this heart he would write his law. And that he would cause us to walk in obedience to him all for the sake of his name, all for the sake of his glory. 
to ensure that he would be honored. He has placed his name upon his saints and to make sure that his name is not sullied, to make sure that his name is not despised. He will make certain that his saints walk in holiness. But it isn't then that the saint has no need to continue striving for this personal holiness. This isn't a spiritual laziness. This isn't an apathy. This isn't a lack of concern. What we find in the scriptures is that Jesus warns us over and over and over again, be alert, be on guard, be sober-minded. Paul will tell us when we get to chapter 6 of this letter to the Ephesians that we're to suit up every day in spiritual armor. He reminds us that we're in the middle of a spiritual war and that the enemy is playing for keeps, seeking to devour our soul. So no difference, this is not an inactivity. The life of a saint, it's not like a conveyor belt or one of those moving sidewalks that you saw on the Jetsons where God just picks you up, he places you on it, and then you sit there and wait for holiness to happen as you head off towards your destination in heaven. God calls us. He tells us to be holy. He calls us to strive for holiness. But we can rest in the promise that this holiness is guaranteed. The holiness will happen because it is God who wills and works in us to accomplish his good purpose. Because he has unilaterally placed his name upon you, he will do the work of cleansing and causing you to walk in holiness. So what this frees us from is any sense of anxiety. We don't have to constantly run around judging our lives, worrying about the sincerity of our walk, fretting over our struggles. We enjoy what Jesus calls rest for our souls. Basking in the victory that he has already won. Recognizing that our sanctification, our glorification, the work of being holy, it is guaranteed because the God of the universe has put his name upon it. There's nothing we need to do to earn eternal life. That we look to the cross and we look to the empty tomb and we look to our risen Savior and we say, There was our redemption purchased. We don't have to be so inwardly focused. We don't have to come to the end of every day and grade ourselves on how we have done as the saints of God. Now listen, the way of eternal life, it remains hard. We still have a very real enemy. Even the flesh within ourselves that remains constantly trying to trip us up, trying to call us back to walking in rebellion. But the battle is completely different. Again, I say we fight from the assurance of victory. We fight knowing that Jesus Christ has secured all that needs to happen on our behalf. And then in this, what we find, even greater than this, is that he doesn't work outside of ourselves. He works in us. He accomplishes this work by his, this victory by his working within us. We find all of a sudden that his commandments are no longer burdensome, that our affections have changed, that along with this new heart that he gives us, we find that now his commandments are a delight. We find joy in doing the things that bring him honor. Do you see how much different this is from the man that's constantly worried, around, running around worried, seeking to earn salvation or to hold on somehow to his place as a saint of God? Dear children, if you are in fact Christian, you're a holy one. You have been set apart by God to God. You have been cleansed by God for God. You have been changed by God to come into the presence of God for the glory of God. Do you understand? The entirety of your sainthood is bound up in God. It is he who has made us saints. It is he who has called us and enabled us to live saintly lives, and he will finish this work. It is there that you will find true rest. It is there that you will find the yoke to be easy and the burden to be light. Because it is to God's glory that he finishes the work. And at the same time, this isn't something impersonal or sterile. Do you understand this? It isn't as if he's just made some, some robots, some automatrons, some men that he cares nothing about because he's so transfixed only on his glory. He's lavished his love upon us in this. He delights in singing over us. He finds joy when we glorify him. Do you understand? This is a personal thing. This is a loving thing. This is an intimate thing. Again, all wrapped up in the glory of God. So dear friends, I tell you, this is the first thing to know. This is the first thing that Paul says you must know about a Christian. A Christian is a saint. Not some super class of Christian. Not just the preachers or the teachers or the apostles or the elders. A Christian. A person who can rest in the assurance that the promises that we find of God here are being and will be worked in your life. He is a saint. 
He has been set apart from the world and unto God. Both outwardly and inwardly, he is being cleansed. He is being transformed in his very desires. His will is being changed. He will look. He will live. He will walk. He will think. He will desire differently. My friends, do you find this to be true of you? That's the question. Are you a peculiar kind of person? Is there something essentially different about you from the rest of the world? Or do you simply blend in? I'm not talking about a loud obnoxiousness. I'm not talking about this awkward and artificial self-righteousness that so many men seem to carry. Have you ever noticed that the people that go on Facebook and talk so often about how weird and how strange and how different they are, they're not very interesting? But the true saint, the Christian, the man in whom the Spirit of God dwells, there will be a sincere and modest purity about them, a self-forgetfulness, no longer pursuing the same things as the rest of the world, forsaking things that they clamor and fight for, letting go of certain rights, the rights to sulk when they don't get their way, the rights to demand their preference, the right to be offended, the right to get even, the right to claim their own time for their own special purposes, the right to pursue only their own good. Do you see? You'll be different. You'll stand out, aiming for an altogether different goal, as if you're playing to a different audience than the rest of the world. Dear friends, I tell you, a saint, he will stand out. Now what Paul says here is that the saints were in Ephesus. There was a city filled with pagan, false God-worshiping men and women place not unlike where most of us live. He might as well have written to the saints who are in Crosby, to the saints who are in Houston, to the saints who live anywhere in this world. And surely you know by now that you cannot be set apart. You cannot live as one who has been set apart and just blend in. It won't happen. You will be weird. Isn't that what we pray for on every Wednesday night? Dear God, make our children weird. Make them stand out. Make them different. Now some people, they will be drawn to this. Some people, they will find an attractiveness to your sincerity. They will find an attractiveness to your self-forgetfulness. They will know that you're a person they can call on to pray for them, to serve them, to comfort them in times of mourning. But for the vast majority of people, you will make them incredibly uncomfortable. They will be offended by your sincerity. They will be offended by your desires. They will be offended by the way that you walk. Dear friends, you must know that darkness cannot stand the light. But no matter what the world's response to you is, you must know that you will stand out, even amongst many groups of professing Christians. You see, many people who believe themselves to be Christian, many people who believe themselves to be saints, what they spend most of their life doing is giving up the things they want to do in order to do the things that God commands them to do. But again, I say a a saint truly delights. He has new affections and new purposes, a new will that seeks to bring honor and glory to God, and that's very off-putting. It makes people uncomfortable. This holiness, the self-forgetfulness, they will feel judged at times. They will feel condemned. They will feel as though you believe you are better than them simply because you're seeking to honor God. There's a conviction that comes upon the darkness whenever the light walks into the room. They look at us and they think it's almost as if it's in your nature to walk in a way that's pleasing to God. And even, again, I say amongst those who count themselves Christians, they will look at you and they will wonder, where does this peace come from? Where does this assurance come from? Why are they so restful even in their activity? Why are they confident even in the middle of spiritual warfare that they appear to be losing? Don't you see? A saint is not someone who can look like the rest of the world. Even the rest of the believing, well, professing believers In this world, a saint is truly set apart. And so if you would claim these promises for yourself, if you would read through this book of Ephesians and you would say, I cannot wait for my eternal inheritance. I'm so blessed to be adopted by God. I cannot believe that the son of the most high God is working on my behalf even now. Then you must ask yourself, am I a saint? Do I see God working in my life like this? 
But Paul didn't stop there, did he? He says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, some commentators, not many, but some, they've wondered whether Paul's not speaking about two different groups of people here. There are the saints, and then there are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, it seems to me quite clear that we can reject that right at the beginning. Again, I say that a saint is one who has been set apart unto God. Jesus says, no one comes to the Father except through me. We know that it is only through faith in Jesus Christ that we may be cleansed by his blood and welcomed into the presence of God. And therefore, a saint must also be one who is faithful in Christ Jesus. A Christian is a saint and a Christian is one who is faithful in Christ Jesus. So we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning asking the question, what does it mean to be faithful in Christ Jesus? Now, this is the description of Christ that we're Christians that we're much more comfortable with, isn't it? Saints can take a little bit getting used to. But we're familiar with the concept that a Christian is one who is faithful in Christ Jesus. But what do those words actually mean? I'm not being cute by asking this question. Surely, surely you know that by now. You'll remember that our goal is to come to the word of God with fresh ears, seeking to hear it anew each and every time. The worst thing we can do is come to the word of God assuming that we know what it means. We come with humility, with a desire to dig, asking questions. What do these words actually mean? So at first glance, we might think we immediately understand what they mean. At first glance, we would read these words, faithful in Christ Jesus, and we would assume that what Paul is saying is that a Christian is someone who has faith in Christ Jesus. Faith is the instrument of our salvation. Faith is the empty hands by which we reach out our hands and receive the gift of eternal life. Faith is the thing which proclaims to the world, I cannot save myself, but I trust that he can. Faith is what joins us to Christ so that his righteousness is credited to our account. So this is what we call men to, repent and believe in the gospel. Put your faith in Christ and you will be a Christian. Surely that's what Paul means here. A Christian is someone who places their faith in Christ. Well, certainly at least at the funda most fundamental level, that is what he means. A Christian is a saint who has been saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus. You see, we began where Paul began. It was almost as if in the beginning of his description of the Christian, Paul reached back into eternity past with God, and then he moves forward into our present experience. You see, a Christian is first one who has been called by God to be a saint, holy and set apart unto him. As Paul will say in verse 4 of this first chapter, they have been chosen by God before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Before we were even born, before the world was, God chose you to be a saint, a holy one, one who he would make blameless. But from our perspective, our Christian life began at the moment of faith. Someone comes to us and they share the gospel. That's the way it was for me. They came and they shared the gospel. Neither one of us had any idea whether I'd been chosen by God. That wasn't for us to know. That wasn't even the question. Nobody came to me and demanded to know. Before I tell you the good news about Jesus Christ, prove to me that God has chosen you to be a holy one. No way. There was nothing about me that looked any different than the rest of the world. I was a sinner, a rebel, a man deserving of nothing but the wrath of God. Now, maybe I was interested in calming my conscience. Maybe I was looking for something to quiet my soul. But I assure you, dear friends, I was not seeking for God, and there was nothing about me that looked saintly. And yet I heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I believed. And in that moment, it all became clear. Listen to what Paul says to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. I had no clue. My parents had no clue. No one in all the earth had a clue. If you'd have gone to North Shore High School and said, show me the man here who God has marked out for sainthood. Show me the man here who God will call and work in to become holy and blameless before him. I wouldn't have been in your top hundred. There was nothing about me that commended myself to sainthood. But then the gospel came. And at that moment, as I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, it became obvious that I was not hearing the words of a preacher, but that this word had come to me by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
bringing with it full conviction. And in that day, I placed my faith in Jesus Christ. And then they knew. It was by that faith. That faith proved that I'd been chosen by God. But dear friends, we must be careful at this point. We get so wrapped up in the activities of God, and rightly so. Salvation, just like all of the universe, is about God. God's work for God's glory. But if we're not careful, we can make little of faith. We can treat faith as if it's merely an afterthought, something completely insignificant. Dear friends, we cannot do this. We cannot act as if saving faith were nothing, as if all it did was serve to give proof of our election. Faith is essential. Listen, I don't call men to make themselves saints. I don't go up to men on the street and say, hey, would you set yourself apart unto God? I call them to faith. I preach the gospel, and I pray, dear God, send your spirit to bring this child to faith. I call them to repent and turn and believe. I pray and I plead for faith. There's no salvation without it. None of these promises are mine. A man is not Christian if he has not placed his faith in Christ. Now, we know that that faith, it begins with an intellectual awareness. You remember we said that how are they to believe in him and who they have not heard? Faith begins with hearing and understanding who Christ is and what he has done. Dear children, don't assume that this is a given. You need to know that there are men and women gathered all over this country on this day professing faith in a Christ that never existed, placing all their hope in a Christ that they will find nowhere in the scriptures, claiming the promises of this book because they have placed their faith in a Christ of their own making. Now listen, I'm not saying that in order to be able to have true saving faith, you must be able to speak on the hypostatic union or you must be able to recite the Chalcedonian Creed. But I do tell you that for a man to be truly Christian, he will believe certain things about Christ. I want you to think with me about the thief that was next to Jesus on the cross. We often like to talk about this man as if he were someone who knew nothing about Jesus Christ and yet was saved in that last day. Now, I don't want to diminish what God did for this man. We can gain gain great comfort by looking at the fact that he is, in fact, saved. We see evidence that the God of the universe had placed his eye upon him. He, in fact, had marked this man out. He had set this man apart as one of his saints. And yet it wasn't until the very end of his life, to the very last moment, till in the middle of that greatest moment of suffering, at the 11th hour, that God saved him. He had not spent one second following Jesus. There was nothing about him that looked holy. In fact, just moments before this, he was railing against Christ. And then suddenly, in an instant, boom, God saved him. For all eternity, God set him apart and saved him. So if you haven't gone and listened or watched Alistair Begg's sermon, something about the middle man on the cross, or wait, the man in the middle cross said that I could come, I'd encourage you to go watch it. It will will bless your heart. It will bring a tear to your eye. We're reminded when we watch this that no one is welcomed into the kingdom of God because of the depth of their theology. That that man was welcomed into the kingdom because the king of the universe said that he could come. So I don't want to remove all the romance from that story and I don't want to act as if God had done nothing in that. He had done everything in that. But we must not forget that before Jesus told to this man, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise, that man called out to Jesus Christ for mercy. But why? Why did this man look to Jesus Christ and know that's the one I need to ask? Well, you must remember what he said. First, he rebukes his friend. He says, do you not fear God since we are under the same sentence of condemnation and we justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. This man knew that he was a sinner. He knew that his condemnation was just. He knew that he deserved nothing but death. He says, we are receiving the due rewards for our deeds, but this man, speaking of Christ, but this man has done nothing wrong. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He knew that Jesus did not deserve to die. He knew that if he was dying, he was dying for the sins of someone else. So he cries out, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Don't you see? This man knew that Jesus was a king. He knew that his kingdom wasn't of this world, and he knew that death would not keep Jesus off of his throne. That's a gospel that'll preach. Even this man sitting on that side of the empty tomb, he knew more about the gospel of Jesus Christ than the vast majority of men preaching in pulpits this morning. So listen, man is not saved by his doctrine. But a man who is Christian, a man who is saved, 
The doctrine he has will be sound and true and biblical. He may not move a whole lot past John 3.16, but what he knows about Jesus Christ will be true. And there will be some fundamental things that he understands. He will know that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He will know that he stepped down from heaven and came to earth and took upon himself the fullness of humanity. He will know that Jesus lived a perfectly sinless life, fulfilling every last commandment in honor to the Father. He will know that Jesus then went to the cross and bore our sins, paying the penalty that we deserve. He will know that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, and he will know that the same Jesus Christ promises that any who repent of their sin and trust in him will be granted eternal life, forgiven and welcomed into his kingdom. Isn't this the most basic of Christian confessions? For I delivered to you of first, of first importance what I also received, that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Dear friends, I tell you, Christians are to be thinking people. So many people that call themselves Christian, you sit down and actually ask them, what do you believe and why do you believe it? Show me the way that your pieces of your theology fit together and you'll find out it's a jumbled mess. They're not thinking people. They're not meditating people. Dear friends, we must be that. We must be a people who sit and seek to know, to engage our minds in our faith. To engage our minds on knowing who God has revealed himself in the scriptures. To not getting so swept up in emotions that we allow that to carry us away from who God has revealed himself to be. We start here. We start with the truths about God that he has revealed in his word. To give ourselves to anything else is to give ourselves to a God who does not exist. And so we're careful. We guard our thoughts. We take great care who we sit under. We're a thinking people. Because faith begins with an intellectual understanding, a belief in these things. Now the saints in Ephesus, they had heard these things. They had been preached to them. In addition to this, God had worked mighty miracles through Paul to prove that they were true. But we must go further. It's more than just an intellectual assent, isn't it? You know this. Saving faith, truly Christian faith, it moves beyond the intellectual. It, 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 it isn't even just a deep conviction that these things are true. It isn't even just a sorrow over our sins and a realization that we need to be saved and forgiven. The faith that allows a man to lay claim to these promises, the faith that makes a man truly Christian, it's a faith that drives this man to truly entrust himself to the gospel, to lean in, to put all your weight upon it, to live life in such a way that I say, if Jesus Christ proves to be a lie, then I'm in deep trouble because I've got nothing else. I staked all that I have upon him. It's going to be Christ or it's going to be nothing. I'm not going to hedge my bets. I'm not going to hold anything back just in case. I've placed everything that I have upon the weight of this gospel. That's the Christian faith. So surely this is at least in part what Paul means when he says that these saints are those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The word that we find there, faithful, in Greek it is pistos. Now when Jesus came to the apostle Thomas, you remember that they call him Doubting Thomas for a reason. That the other apostles, the other disciples, they had come and they had told them all that they had seen. They had run in to the resurrected Christ and they knew that he lived. But you remember that Thomas said in John 20, unless I see his hands and the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So Jesus, good as he is, he came and revealed himself to Thomas and he says, Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. That's the same word, pistis, believe. Don't be an unbeliever, be a believer. Believe that I am who I say I am. Believe that I've done what I've said I've done. Believe I will do what I say I will do. Give yourself, give yourself wholly and completely over to me. Believe, do not stay in your unbelief. And so we do well to say that. Isn't that how we refer to the Christian? We call them believers. A Christian is one who has been set apart by God unto God and comes to faith in Jesus Christ, has come to believe and trust with all that they are and certain truths about him. But the Greek experts that translated our Bibles, they didn't put the word believe there, did they? They put faithful. I looked at a number of translations this week, and almost every one of them, they have the word there, faithful. Now, faithfully generally means more than just having faith, doesn't it? So there's another place in the letter of the Ephesians where we find Paul using that word faithful. It's for, towards the very end. Ephesians 6.21, he says, So that you may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. Tychicus is a faithful minister. 
What Paul is saying in essence is, I trust this man. I trust this man and therefore you can trust him. I trust that he's going to deliver you the letters that I've given him and he's going to accurately report to you how I am doing the work that God is doing here in Rome. This man, Tychicus, he has proven himself to be faithful or what we might call trustworthy or reliable. So is this what Paul means here in the first chapter? When he talks about the Christian, the saint, is a true Christian one who not only places their faith in Christ, but proves themselves to be trustworthy and reliable. Is our assurance, our ability to lay claim to the promises we find in this book, is it bound up in us being a people who does what we say we will do? Is the Christian life like this? We place our, our faith in Christ, and he trusts in us. So whenever I come to an attribute of man listed in Scripture, and I struggle to rightly understand it, I find it helpful to go to other portions of Scripture and see if God uses this same word with regards to himself. We spent nearly a year doing this on Wednesday nights, didn't we? We talked about the attributes of God. You'll remember that we began with the incommunicable attributes of God. That's those things that are only true of God. Eternal, infinite, immutable. These things can only be said of God. But then we moved on from there to the communicable attributes of God. These things with which God has shared with those who are made in his image. Things like love and wisdom, even holiness. As those made in God's image, we retain and we reflect these things to the world. Now, they'll never be present in us to, in, as fully and purely and infinitely as they are true of God. But we know that our love, that true love, is found in the love of God. We know that anything that we can declare to be true, any truth that we utter in this life, it finds its source in the God of truth. And we know that our holiness is bound up completely in our being set apart unto him. And so we must be very careful. Anytime we seek to identify what these words mean, we must always begin with God and work down to ourselves, never the other way around. I told you earlier that there are churches filled with men and women today worshiping Jesus who never existed. And every time I say something like that, I know that a number of you get very uncomfortable. I've heard from you. You talk as if we're the only good church in all the world. No, dear friends, there's at least three. No, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. But there's a lot of them out there preaching lies. These people don't do it for evil purposes. These people are deceived by their own hearts. Many of them believe that their number one job is to fill a room like this. They know the quickest way to fill a room like this is to tell people what they want to hear about God. I was texting with my wife last night on the way back from the office and I was remembering how five years ago, was it, we were planning on a thousand people here for Easter Sunday. And I was thinking, God, wouldn't it be something if you brought us 250 today? Because who God really is is offensive. It's a stumbling block to men. So we must be very, very careful. And one of my jobs is to warn you, to tell you to look out, because some of you that find the things that I say to you offensive, you're gonna leave this place and you may go to some other churches in the area. Dear friends, just be careful. Just be careful. Are they preaching the word of God? Can they show you in the scriptures why they tell you what they tell you about who God is? Or do they play to your emotions? You see why I must say these things to you. So, again, I say there are men all over this world, all over the country this morning, and they are singing songs and offering prayers and preaching sermons to a God who never existed because they sought to define God based on their own man-centered understanding of these words. They look around at the way that they love. They look around at the way that they show mercy. They start with themselves and they try to reason up to God. When you do this, you will always end up with a man-centered, man-focused God that's made in our image. You'll find that you end up with an idol that's not made with wood or stone, that is made with thoughts and well wishes. So, whenever we come to some attribute of God, like love or like holiness, we do well to first ask, how does God define and reveal faithfulness in himself? 
And it's from there that we can then go on to ask, how does scripture say that my faithfulness relates to his? So if we look at what I believe to be Paul's last letter before his execution, 2 Timothy, Paul's in prison again in Rome, but this time he knows he's not getting out. He sent some indications. If we look at his his, uh, letter to Philemon, he says some things about preparing a room for him, and I hope to see you soon. It's evident that Paul thought during that imprisonment in Rome, I'm going to get out. I'm going to come home. But there's a different tone in these letters to Timothy. It's clear that he knows his days are short. His days are numbered. He will soon be executed by Nero. And so he's exhorting the young pastor and he's telling him, you must look to Jesus Christ. Look to the empty tomb. Look to the resurrection. There you will find your hope and you must preach this, trust this, and trust this to other men that they may share this news. Because Paul's hope was that while he would die, that through the preaching of this word that never fails, others would live. That was his whole purpose for pressing on. And so he's exhorting Timothy in this way. Then we find in 2 Timothy 2, verse 11 through 13, this saying is trustworthy. That's the same word as faithful in Ephesians. This saying is trustworthy. This saying is true. You can rely on it. You can stake your eternity on it because this word comes from God and God cannot lie. This saying is trustworthy for, because if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure We will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. So Paul tells us, if you die with Christ, you will also live with him. If you endure with Christ, you will also reign with him. If you deny Christ, he will deny you. Sounds an awful lot like what Jesus said in Matthew 10, whoever denies me before men, I will deny them before my Father who is in heaven. He then says, and if we are faithless, he remains faithful. There's that word again, pistos, faithful. He remains, that is God, he remains faithful. So what's Paul saying here? See, some people have taken this to mean that even when we are faithless, even when we wander away, even when we abandon Christ, even when our faith proves to be faithlessness, he continues to hold on to us. He's somehow committed to us. And so what we'll find is that many people who have a misunderstanding of what it means to talk about the perseverance of the saints, they'll use this as a faulty proof text. And this is what gets us in some trouble, isn't it? We lead people to a point and we tell them, say this prayer and you will be saved. They say the prayer. They join the church. They undergo the baptism. And then they run like dogs. And we keep coming back to them saying, no, 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 he's faithful, even if you're faithless. You remember you said that magic prayer that tied him to you forever. He can't shed you if he wants to. But what Paul's saying here is the exact opposite of this. Now let me be perfectly clear. God will ensure that his saints persevere in the faith to the very end. What did Jesus pray for Peter on the night of his betrayal? Peter, I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. The way that he perseveres his saints is he causes his saints to persevere in the faith. That's what he's doing right now at the right hand of the Father. As he intercedes for you, he is praying that your faith may not fail. Can you hear him? Can you imagine the joy you would hear if you heard Jesus on the other side of that door praying for you now? And dear friends, he promises you that he is. He is praying that your faith will not fail. So no, no. The man who proves himself faithless, that is not the man that God will cause to endure to the end because he has fallen away. He has proven his faith to be faithlessness. What Paul says here is he lists two positive responses and the rewards. Those are pretty plain. You die with Christ, you live with Christ. You endure with Christ, you reign with Christ. Then he lists two negative responses. You deny Christ, he will deny you. You prove yourself faithless towards Christ, he will be faithful. Now we we see the way ours are parallel. We see the way denying Christ and proving ourselves to be faithless. We know how those two things go hand in hand. But how does Jesus' denying of the one who denies him have anything to do with his faithfulness? Well, it has to do with the last sentence that I didn't read to you. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God's faithfulness ultimately means he cannot deny himself. Do you understand? God isn't isn't pledging faithfulness to you, it's to himself. 
God cannot deny himself. God cannot cease being God. And God cannot lie. God cannot do the thing. God cannot not do the very thing that he has promised to do. This drives the whole trustworthiness of the statement. This statement is trustworthy because the God who is trustworthy, the God who is faithful, the God who can't quit being God has made it. God cannot, he will not deny, disown, or do anything contrary to himself. What is God's ultimate allegiance to? His own glory, his own name. He will do nothing that dishonors his name. Nothing that encourages men to dishonor his name. And so you see the joy in this for those that die with Christ and endure with Christ. The basis of our hope, the assurance we have that he will fulfill his promises, it's bound up in this. God could no sooner abandon his promises than stop being God, than deny himself. This is good news for the saints. But for those who prove themselves to be faithless, for those who deny Christ, this is the worst news ever. Because he says, I will be faithful to myself. And as God, those who deny me, I will deny them. They will be cast out of my presence forever, punished for their faithlessness, all for the sake of my own name. This seems to match up with what Paul says in Romans 3. He was talking about the judgment of God upon the unbelieving Jewish people. And they started to wonder, well then, is God faithless? Is God faithless to destroy these faithless people? Shouldn't he have committed himself to them even in the spite of their even in spite of their faithlessness? He says this, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? That becomes a tongue twister after you say it about 100 times, by the way. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail in your judgment. These are the words of King David. King David crying out to God saying, God, I know that for you to not bring your right judgment, for you to not punish the faithless, would be to cease being God. And that's the one thing you cannot do. So for the, the very definition of God being faithful is that God will be God and God will reward the faithful. He will punish the unfaithful. He will deny those who deny him. And as with all things, God's faithfulness, it springs out of his very nature. It's not some standard he attains to. Again, this is where we get in trouble, dear friends. If we say God must love the way that I define love, God must be merciful the way I define mercy, God must be faithful the way that I define faithfulness, you end up with a God who is not there. God's faithfulness is his faithfulness to himself, and God cannot deny himself. So when God upholds his promises, his promises to reward those that endure, that die with Christ and endure to the end, and his promises to destroy those who prove themselves to be faithless. He is acting out of his very nature. This is why whenever God entered into a covenant with Abraham, whenever he sought to make a promise to Abraham, we read about this in Hebrews 6 as we get commentary back on what we read in Genesis. We find there that when God issued this promise to Abraham, he swore by himself. He said, I'm gonna swear by something that's unchanging, that cannot be denied that cannot give up the sake of his own glory. I'm swearing by my own name, Abraham, and because I have done this, you can be sure that my promises will come to pass. Do you understand? So what does this mean for us then? If God's faithfulness does not mean his commitment to faithless people, if God's faithfulness does not mean his commitment to those who would deny him, if God's faithfulness does not mean that he's going to bless those that don't endure to the end, if God's faithfulness does not mean that you can deny Christ in the end and find yourself staring face to face with him in all eternity, then what does this mean for us? What does this mean about our faithfulness? I'm gonna stick with Father Abraham. We hear these words about him in Romans 4, verse 18. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in his faith. There's, there's that word again, pistos. Abraham did not weaken in his faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Do you understand? Do you see the picture now? I pray that I haven't lost you. Abraham's faith was not weakened. 
He did not become unbelieving and faithless. Even when everything around him in his life said, you're hoping in a fool's errand. There's nothing about reality that tells you that God can fulfill this promise. You're as good as dead, Abraham. Your wife is barren, and he's promised you children. You're a fool to cling to this, and yet the scripture tells us he never wavered. He was truly faithful until the end, not because Abraham was trustworthy. Do you see this? The hope that God would fulfill his promise wasn't found in Abraham's trustworthiness. Abraham was a mess. It was found in the faithfulness of God, the trustworthiness of God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised, and in this, God is glorified. Is there anything worse you can say about a man than that he doesn't keep his word? That he's a liar? And yet, when we hold fast to the promises of God, this is why he is so glorified in, his, in our suffering, while we are so blessed in our suffering. Because when the world comes about us with all its biggest guns, when everything around us tells us to let loose of the faith, that God has abandoned you, that he can't fulfill his promises, and you continue to look to him and you declare to the world, he is able to fulfill his promises. Do you see the way he is glorified? Do you see the way his name is exalted? This is what it means to be faithful. The faithfulness is a trusting. It's a believing. It's a resting in the promises of God. Not believing in your own abilities to hold on to him. It's hearing these words and knowing God is promised and God cannot lie. God can no sooner abandon these promises than cease being God. This is why Paul was able to look back on the end of his life all the weakness, all the failure, all the sin, all the frailty. And he says, I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Dear friends, do you understand that your fight is a fight to keep the faith? This is it. This is it. You fight to keep the faith. We get all distracted and discouraged by our failures. We're, we're, we're constantly looking inward. We're constantly consumed with all our sin and all our failures and all our untrustworthiness. And then we go out there and we fight all these symptoms. And that's all that they are. Those are symptoms. They're symptoms of a heart that has chosen something other than God. If you believe he is trustworthy, if you believe he is faithful, if you believe that he will fulfill his promises, then you trust in him and you abandon the world. So every single act of sin in our life is saying, I don't believe you're trustworthy, God. You said that following after your plan, that abiding in your will will bring me ultimate happiness. Well, I don't believe so. I think this girl, I think this drink, I think this job will bring me happiness. We're declaring to the world that our God is to not be trusted, that he doesn't fulfill his promise. And so the fight then doesn't become about running out here and trying to deal with all the things. It comes about fighting for faith, keeping the promises of God ever before our heart. Isn't that what we do in here as a faith family? We preach this gospel to ourselves and we preach it to each other. Constantly holding up the glory of God and saying, look at this God. His ability to keep his promises is bound up in his own glory. We fight to see this faithful one. We fight to keep our heart fixed on him. Through the singing of songs, through the offering of prayers, through the reading of the word, through the taking of the Lord's Supper. So many men wonder why their faith is so weak. So many men wonder why they lack all manner of assurance and they completely abandon coming and doing what God has called us to do in this place. He said, I will meet you here and I will strengthen your faith. And then we do this to the very end. Till our very dying breath, that when the enemy swarms, when it feels like utter foolishness, when your heart tells you to give up, you cling to that hope. You keep going back to God and saying, no, he is faithful. Even if this means losing everything this world has to offer, even your own life, we keep preaching this gospel to ourselves, we keep preaching it to each other, and we call each other to hold fast to the one who is faithful. Dear brothers, there's gonna be times in your life when it feels like God has completely abandoned you. There's gonna be times when you think that maybe he has forgotten you or you've done something to disqualify yourself from his promises and that's when you need this body more than anything else because they can remind you, no, he is faithful. Let us recount his faithfulness. Let us go to the word and see his promises and then even in our own lives, let us see all the ways that he has proven to be faithful. But ultimately, we look to the empty tomb of Jesus Christ and we say, see how faithful he is. He did not spare his own son. Will he not freely give us all things in him? Do you understand? 
that as Jesus Christ walked out of the tomb with your victory raised in the air, he says, you can trust in my Father. He fulfills every last promise. He did not abandon me to the grave. That's the fight you fight. That's the fight of faith. You look to Jesus Christ. What, what causes you to fear in this world? What are you afraid of? Death? He says, I've defeated it. What should you fear more than this? The wrath of God? He says, I've tasted it. He says, I've taken all the things that you should fear and I've consumed them and there are no more for you. Now rest in me. Trust in me. Place your faith in me and keep clinging to me to your very last breath. That's what it means. I have much more to say, but this is Easter Sunday and I don't want you visitors to realize that I go over every week and so... But we see here that he talks about those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. He's not just talking about our faith in Christ Jesus. He's saying that the saints and the faithful ones, they are in Christ Jesus. This is truly Paul's favorite phrase for the Christian. In Christ Jesus. We're going to see just in these first 14 verses that 11 times Paul uses this phrase. And so we'll get to unpack it at greater length in the months to come. But we recognize that it is in Christ Jesus that we find all that is promised to us. That our identity as saints, it's a promise that he will make us holy, that the source of all our spiritual blessing, the end of all our spiritual blessings, it is all bound up in Christ. And so as we find Paul using this term over and over and over again, eventually we come to realize that not only is a Christian hope in Christ from an outside perspective, but that we're actually in him. We're not just looking at a faithful one, we have been placed within him. Do you understand the difference? That we are literally through faith in Christ. Paul compares it to a singular spiritual body that all that Christ has done, all that Christ has earned, all that is true of Christ is true of the Christian. Do you understand how radical this is? It means that we don't just hope in some things that God will do someday. We trust in what he's doing right now. We're not merely looking off into the distance that right now you're in Christ. He isn't merely making promises to you. He's working them in you. This is the essence of Christianity. That you can truly say, I've been crucified with Christ. I've been raised with Christ. And right now, I am seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Your butt's in Ephesus, but you're with Christ in heaven. Do you understand? And I understand how difficult this is. Not just difficult to understand, to live out. How do you live as a saint in Crosby, Texas, knowing that your home is in heaven? knowing that those rewards are yours. But dear friends, this is what we fight for. We cry out to God and we say, God, strengthen my faith. Help me to trust in this. Help the burden not become too much for me to bear as the world crashes in and calls me crazy. Dear friends, we gather together in a place like this and we promise each other, he who promised is faithful. He will do what he has said. my hope for you this Easter Sunday morning is at this point where the traditional Southern Baptist preacher tells you to come up here and say a prayer that ain't it bro if you want to pray you pray to God what I'm calling you to do is to look to Jesus Christ and trust in him I'm calling you to turn away from your sin, to turn away from your efforts, to turn away from your own trustworthiness, to turn and look to Jesus Christ and say, do I believe that he has done what he says he has done and am I ready to, ready to throw the full weight of all that I am at his feet? Has he brought me to a place where I am ready to live as if it is going to be Christ or it is going to be nothing and if this gospel turns out to be a lie, I am in deep, deep trouble. Dear friends, if by the working of the Spirit of God you have come to that place, then do it. Is it going to involve prayer? Of course it's going to involve prayer, but I can't promise you you're saved. That's not my job. 
My job is to hold Christ before you and call you to believe. It is his job to save you. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the assurance, Father, that all your promises will be true. But Father, we recognize that the flip side of that is also true. That so great is your zeal for your glory that you will punish every last faithless sinner. So we recognize that the only thing that really matters is have we trusted in Christ. Father, it is my desire that you would, for any soul within this place, any man, woman, and child in this room, Father, I pray it for the babies down the hall. Would you save them? Would these words reach them, not just as the words of men, but in the power of the Holy Spirit bringing full conviction, and would you save them? Fathers, we stand and we seek to honor you with our lips, singing songs of praise. I pray that it would also be the song of our heart, that we would not be hypocrites, that we would not just be paying mouth service to you, but that, Father, all that we are would cry out to you in worship, that you would be glorified by your people now. Father, we ask this in your son's precious name. Amen.